I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Connor Heise. Connor, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a materials engineer, right? Correct. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of things uh, to a lot of different people, but kind of the base idea is that if there's a material existing, uh, we're involved in it. So this could go from extracting the mineral, from mining engineering, all the way to you know maybe even working at Disneyland and being a costume designer. It's kind of, it spans the gamut, and uh, but a lot of people like to say that the kind of breakthrough that kind of put material science and materials engineering on the map was the silicon chip uh, that kind of powers all of our technology. Okay, that's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> a very eloquent explanation of a very big field. Uh, at what stage in your career are you at? I am a graduate student, uh, just hanging out in the master's world, uh, hopefully being done soon. Uh, but I, I've been a student for quite some time. So yeah, if I say student life kind of right now, uh, kind of actually for the last nine years, and uh, kind of working towards not being a student anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can empathize. Uh, yeah, nine years is quite a, a long time. So uh, yeah, I was I was hoping uh, before ten years. So let's see if we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> did you do your uh, undergrad in materials engineering? I did. Yeah. So also at UBC. So I, I kind of just went straight in. Started in 2013, and. I came thinking I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, uh, but you know, first year is first year, and uh, things things don't always go your way. Uh, for me, it was a very, uh, very it was a, it was a repeat of high school essentially, and so I, I didn't have I lost interest in kind of education <laughs> for for a moment there. Um, but then when it came time to decide where you know in second year you have to decide what field you're gonna pursue, and I had always thought mechanical engineering, mechanical engineering, that's it, you know laser focus. And then I ended up getting it uh, at the Okanagan campus, which beautiful campus. I've heard great things about it, but I'd kind of chosen uh, Vancouver uh, for studying. And that was kind of where I, my heart was set on being. So I wanted to stay here. And so I kind of did some soul searching and uh, did a little bit of praying and found out that materials engineering was uh, kind of the home for me because anyone can build something, but knowing the right way to build it the first time and using information that not a lot of people have was kind of where I actually enjoy learning. And so that came to materials engineering. That's a, a very, again, eloquent way to wrap up your story. I've had nine years to uh, polish it. <laughs> it's crazy to think that 2013 is nine years ago. Yeah. It seems like just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I try not to think about it. <laughs> In your studies, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Either uh, discoveries that are new to all of humanity or even just something that you personally, um, when you learned it, it made you go, ooh. Yeah, it's, so my research kind of focuses on a lot of little small changes, uh, but a lot of those small changes can kind of start adding up and start making bigger waves, I would say. Uh, so with my research, I was, I started as every grad student does kind of listless in the wind, kind of just doing tests at random and going, maybe I'll see something. And most of the time you're like, 
I don't know if I see something because I really don't know what I'm looking at. And my professor's like, hey, you're doing what everyone's done. That's okay. Choose something and start focusing in. And we ended up running down this trail of something that actually we, we had to stop researching and kind of moved on to something else. But it was quite interesting. It had to do with the interaction. Of, so I do a lot of electrochemical testing. Uh, and so a lot of, you know, when you go back to high school, there's like the three, uh, three cell kind of electrochemistry. So you have a working electrode, uh, a reference electrode, and a counter electrode. And there's some weird interaction when you have a non-electrically connected thing in solution on the working electrode. And it could be plastic, <laughs> like it could be carbon, it could be anything. And it had some really interesting things uh, go on with it that we don't quite know why. We have some good guesses, but again, we haven't, we didn't have time to kind of run it down. But it was just something that, when you're, you know, a novice, I would say at, le- at electricity, you don't really understand how things are traveling. And so when, when I saw, so the, the thing that I guess makes it cool for me is being a materials engineer and looking at rocks, the, the, if you hold it up into the light just right, it went from this kind of gold sheen, which is chalcopyrite's natural color, to pretty much like a rainbowed effect uh, out from the center. And it was kind of the first, oh, I'm actually doing something to that rock. Like there, there's something there. And when I showed the pictures, my supervisor was like, whoa, hold on. What's the, what, and how did you set that up? What, what's happening here? And so it was kind of the first time I was like, oh, this is cool. I'm, I'm doing something. I'm not just, you know, aimless at this point. It's always really satisfying to see the physical uh, change that you're making in the world. But it's even more satisfying when it's uh, that attractive, uh, when you get that iridescent um, it wouldn't be as um, rewarding, I think, if it just turned, you know, black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't have that kind of, yeah, as you move it, you see the change as well. Yeah, there's a lot more. You can go really deep with that <laughs> metaphor, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing out all these colors that you didn't know were in the rock. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, what are you working on right now? Yeah, so we're focusing on uh, what's called best practices of mineral electrochemistry. And it's essentially when I came in as a student, like I said, you know, listless, kind of blown in the wind, not really know what was happening. And when I was reading papers, a lot, a lot of papers, hundreds of papers, uh, you quickly realize that people don't really agree with each other. You know, there's contradictions. And sometimes when you're trying to com- compare two different things, you end up saying like, well, how can I actually compare these things? You haven't even told me everything I need to know to actually try to make a comparison. And so I kind of brought that forward and we were kind of talking with my supervisors and then we're like, why don't we focus in on that and see what's better? Because my supervisor had an idea about, you know, maybe utilizing some masking uh, in the techniques that we were using and wanting to see how that affected everything. And so that's kind of the the rabbit we started chasing. And uh, it's been masking. Uh, yeah, masking. So in the working electrodes in that kind of electrochemical setup, uh, usually you have what we call a massive electrode. So it's a lar- uh, usually like a couple centimeter square rock. Uh, you throw it in resin, and then the interface between the resin and the rock has space between it. Um, and so you're just covering that up so that it doesn't affect the test because you hope to have a perfectly 2D surface. Welcome to the world. <laughs> Not really the case. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, so trying to understand 
how that affects it and really just trying to see how everything every small like how you set up the test you know if i put this here if i stir the solution every small thing that would be a regular test setup situation seeing how they actually affect the test and the results that you see and why are you doing this from my perspective i'm looking at it as i hope one day this becomes a manual for every master student that comes in that's doing electrochemical testing because there's it's like oral tradition you kind of walk in and you're like i don't know what i'm doing you get fortunate to ask someone and they actually answer your question and then you're like cool but why you know going going back to when you were five years old and you're like why this daddy why that what's this and you're like stop asking please <laughs> it's kind of that scenario where you just you have so many questions and sometimes you can't answer the why and so trying to chase down some of those whys and in terms of my research using chalcopyrite as our example chalcopyrite's quite an important mineral right now because it's the largest copper bearing mineral that we have on earth currently because we've kind of used up all the uh, the more high quality stuff and so because of that a lot of research is focusing in on how do we extract copper and in that extraction method chalcopyrite is notoriously recalcitrant so it's like please don't <laughs> no thank you <laughs> I, I don't want to come out today and so the research surrounding that is using these techniques and test uh, setups in order to get information to understand better and when you're reading through the literature you're like I don't know if you've actually told me all I need to know to understand not necessarily exactly how you did it, but I can't really replicate it. You know, like you missed out, okay, what's your mineral? What's, you know, there's a lot of smaller details that are easily overlooked. And so being able to understand those better and change the industry, I would say the, the say maybe the, uh, the stigma around reporting it's surprising that in research, everything isn't reported as much as you would think it would be, uh, at least from the, the section that I'm working in with all the papers I'm working with. There are people that do a really good job, and so I don't want to throw them under the bus, uh, but it's, a, it's not as many as you would think um, for whatever reasons. Maybe it's they didn't have equipment or things, but it's surprising how much information is lacking when they're making some fairly bold claims about the minerals. Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, it's certainly good to know why you're doing certain things and not just because that's the way it's always been done. Um, especially as the world changes, um, the way that things have always been done may suddenly become obsolete or uh, ineffective. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good for you. Uh, do you do any field work or is it all lab-based? All lab-based. It would be nice to get out into the trees, um, but yeah, it's chalcopyrite is a hard one to find. If someone did find chalcopyrite, it would probably almost immediately become a uh, junior mining company trying to uh, get get the land and uh, make a mine out of it. Uh, so it's a lot of uh, Etsy hunting, a little bit of Amazon, eBay, you know, just kind of sleuthing around trying to find high quality mineral samples, but. I would like to swing a pickaxe. If, if, if offered the opportunity, I would. <laughs> Excellent. I, I'm sure there are people who will take you up on that. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of these interviews has been hearing about um, the informal stories that go along with work. Um, I'm sure you must have some amazing lab stories where things either didn't go as planned or you got a very unexpected result. Uh, 
Do you have any fun lab stories that you'd care to share? I wish I had better stories, to be honest. <laughs> um, I'm fortunate in the fact that my tests kind of take everything really simple and really basic. My lab mates, on the other hand, they're doing things that have never been done. Uh, one of my lab mates, he, and he's been a huge help for me, um, his name's Hussein. He, uh, he's building this UV chamber where he controls the humidity and temperature, and he's just, he just He's doing this whole thing, and I've been watching him kind of go through the ups and downs of building it, and where it's been, what is it? It's been like five or six months, and it's only just about to be ready to be functionally used and doing exactly what he wants it to do. And I'm just looking at it, going, "Yeah, I like my testing. I'm I'm happy over on this side of the bench. This is <laughs> this is much better, I think." <laughs> so, yeah, excellent. <laughs> um. Speaking of things that you enjoy, what would you say is your favorite part of your work? Yeah, I'm. my mind likes to analyze things, usually overanalyze things. <laughs> and so, honestly, once I've done a test and looking at the data, I very much enjoy that process of it, uh, knowing that that's where you kind of start to see whatever it is you were doing. You know, I had that chance to look at the rock and see that, you know, color change. But in most of the tests I've been doing, there's not really a lot of changes to what the sample looks like in the end. You know, the fun part is, you know, you get to wipe a little acetone on it and put it in a sander or sand it a little bit by hand. Sorry, no, no, no mechanical sanders all by hand. So I get my little workout in on my forearms. Um, but yeah, so going, going back home, you know, sitting on the computer, as much as I don't like sitting on a computer, I get to experience you know, I, I throw up a graph and go, oh, wait, that that's what that test did. You know, oh, this is this is actually a really good test. This this answered our question. So it's kind of that you get to have those little small epiphany moments once you've kind of come out of the lab and are looking at the data. That's a great way of putting it. Um, you get that aha moment uh, that you had with the visual change in the rock. Uh, but again, you don't always get that. So yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what would you say is the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Lab technicians are a different breed of people, let's just say. <laughs> so being able to sit in a lab for hours on end, days on end, you know, not seeing any physical result kind of show up in front of you and know your work's going well. I, I enjoy it in small sections. You know, I enjoy, you know, a couple hours here, a couple hours there, uh, but actually having to do it consistently week on week on week it it it, it, uh, it pays a toll on the body and the mind and uh, you know you only get a window to the outside world <laughs> fortunately for me my lab has a window not every lab does uh, so yeah so it's I really enjoy being outside and so for me the hard part is actually being stuck inside you know doing the lab work and then going home and having to do you know the analysis on a computer so I'm kind of severed from where I like to be a lot of the time. And so that, that kind of, it's the mental toll, I think, more than anything else. I can imagine. Uh, we've got a ton of really good lab techs here uh, in this department, and um, they love their work. Uh, but I, I can imagine it takes a very special person to um, really enjoy that, that almost solitude. And um, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, and I'd say... It, it's kind of alleviated by the fact that a lot of labs have other people in it. So you kind of get to share in that uh, monotony together. Um, and I was, when, I, when I started coming to the lab, 
it was dead silent, you know, maybe there'd be three or four people in the lab as well. And it's just like, and you're like, okay, this is a little uncomfortable. That silence is a little eerie at, at points. And so I just, I bought a little like Bluetooth speaker and I just started playing music. Cause I was like, you know, there's gotta be something in here. And uh, over time uh, the lab members were like, Oh, you know, Connor's here. He's playing music or uh, you know, they're like, Oh, I like, what's that song? And they would come up and ask about the song. And then, uh, another lab mate starts playing music as well. So yeah, it's nice. And I get to learn music from him. So we kind of get to do something non-lab related and life related uh, while we're doing our lab work. And we kind of get to meet on common ground there. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, when did you start in this lab? Ooh, th- two and a half years ago. So, yeah, I did. I did. So my degree required uh, two terms of courses, essentially. It was like eight, 16, 18 credits. Um, so I knocked those out in the first year. And then the summer, the end of the summer of this uh, 2019 to 2020. So end of 2020. So that would have been right in the beginning of the pandemic. Right at the beginning. So I was finishing up my courses in the March uh, when it was starting to kind of, there was whispers <laughs> floating around about everything. And that actually shut down the lab. Uh, most of the summer. So it wasn't until August that I was actually able to get into the lab, um, which for me, because I hasn't, hadn't started, it just pushed my timeline. Whereas for a lot of people who were running, you know, these big, long experiments and, you know, they're halfway through their PhD, it really took a toll on a lot of people um, just to not be able to go into the lab. But then they kind of figured out this, okay, three people are allowed in if you're separated. And so they, they, they worked to get us in, which was nice. Um, but it was definitely uh, an interesting experience coming from, you know, was it like six years of undergrad and co-op and exchange and you could just do whatever you wanted kind of at, at a whim. Uh, whereas now it, if you wanted to do something, there was a couple of weeks of planning to actually get it into motion, which I know everyone has experienced and gone through. So Wonderful. Well, I'm glad you're back in. I'm glad they got you in eventually. Um, are you back at full capacity now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've been we've been at full capacity for uh a little while, quite a, quite a bit now, um, and I mean the nature of our lab. Everyone is already kind of in their own aisle. They kind of put one person in an aisle um, to kind of give you the space to spread out and do your work. It wasn't until a couple of months ago I got a second person in my aisle. But our schedules are usually flipped, um, so we weren't really in each other's way, anyways. So yeah, it kind of worked out for our lab at least. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, now I'm curious. Uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that affected your, your work in any way? Uh, I don't. Um, and fortunately for me, I haven't seen that, in, at least in the labs areas that I've been in, that anyone's really been affected in any way. Um, everyone seems to be pretty happy and, you know, they'll smile and, and involve you. And if you have a question, they seem to be more than willing to take the time to answer it. So Wonderful. Yeah. Um, as a whole, do you feel that materials engineering is really open and welcoming, or is it more uh, closed off and insular, or is it a bit of both? I think it, it goes more, so because materials engineering spreads such a gamut, as we were speaking about earlier, mm-hmm. I think it starts to depend on what end of the spectrum or where, where it is you kind of lean into. If you go into the mining industry, I mean, the mining industry is notorious <laughs> for being uh, slow to change uh, in all regards, regardless of what your what topic you want to talk about. And so I find mining is kind of that slow progression. But because materials engineering has that very progressive edge, and it's, it's always trying to do something new, do something better. And at least at UBC, I can't speak for anywhere else, because 
unfortunately I haven't been there, but because, so when I came in, there was only 50 students in my year and it was, I think it was the first year that we were almost exactly 50, 50 men, women. And everyone was so excited. We're like, yes, finally, it's not just a whole bunch of men on the wall. Because if you, if you go into the Frank Forward building and you look at the pictures of graduates, there's, you know, there's, there's women sprinkled out throughout all the years, but you're like, it's one, two, you know, well, there was four that year. That was crazy. And overall, we've always been a small department. So it's kind of hard to break into a small department regardless, I would say, just because, you know, you, oh, look, there's six people. It's, it's kind of hard to throw in a lot of diversity when there's literally just nobody there. Um, but once you kind of, as, as our year kind of came in, we were essentially encouraging anyone to just talk to us about <laughs> materials. Like, come on in, you'll, you'll be fun. If we ever interacted with a first, you're like, oh, I'm thinking about engineering. I don't know. You know, I don't know. Maybe mechanical. Maybe they're like, materials. You're coming to materials. I don't care who you are, what you come to materials. You're family now. And so there was that very family mentality among everything, which was nice. And so it was, if you're willing to put in the work, come on and uh, we'll hang out. It sounds like um, it's both open and insular. Um, Once you're in, you're family, and it's not hard to become family. It's not hard to break in, Um, at least at the time I was, because, yeah, we're we're kind of that mindset of, please come. (laughs) We need you. (laughs) As much as you may not think you need us, we need you. We need you a lot. And anyone who's just slightly interested in anything is like, we don't care your, your history, your past, whatever it is you're going through. We'd rather go through life with you. At least I personally was like, I want to go through life with people. That's kind of the point of life. So, you know, we may have different ideas beliefs, whatever it is, but you know, we're all human and uh, we can all connect on at least something similar. And schooling was always one thing you could connect on. It was terrible. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> in that vein, if anyone's listening right now and does want to go into materials engineering, uh, what background or courses or experience would you recommend they pursue uh, to get a good footing? At UBC, engineering is kind of this interesting field in that everyone takes first year. Everyone takes the same courses. It's a set timetable. You get to choose when your tutorials are. You have two options. Usually you go to, you can go on Thursday or, or, uh, or Tuesday. And uh, that's kind of everyone. Everyone's doing the same thing, which is that kind of helps with that everyone being close together because you're all experiencing it. Um, But I would find it's more of a what are you interested in and pursue the thing you're passionate about. I mean, every degree has its ups and downs, but I find with engineering, it's it will beat you over the head continuously (laughs) no matter what. And so I so in high school, I loved chemistry. That was I was it was all the rage for me. And then, uh, unfortunately, my high school teacher, her husband was in the military. And so he got shipped to the East Coast. And it was like, oh, that's uh, I mean, I'm glad that they got to go together. And that was all good for them. But, you know, now I don't have a really good chemistry teacher. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so the school worked really hard to get someone. And the teacher they got, she was a wonderful person. I loved her. She was great as a person. Her teaching methods weren't jiving with how I like to learn. She taught so her job before the the course or the class was how to take the AP tests. You know, she she just tutored students on how to take a test, not on how to learn the information. So she would be a fantastic tutor for that. She she nailed that. But I kind of started to lose interest in the material because it was not really looked through the lens of 
let's learn this more of, okay, let's get this done. And so I kind of got burned on chemistry a little bit when I came and that kind of, I think that's what helped kind of laser beam my focus onto mechanical engineering. Cause like, well, I like building things. So, you know, that, that makes sense. I'll do that. Um, my dad's a land surveyor, so he's in civil engineering and he's like, mechanical engineers don't make money. Come work in civil for years. <laughs> Still does it actually. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but, um, so when I got to university, I just kept my preconceived notions of what I wanted to do and didn't look at the courses I was taking to understand what it is I enjoyed. And you'll kind of unintentionally do that because when I looked back and tried to figure out what I did want to do, I could see where I enjoyed my courses. Like, okay, I do not like all the mechanical courses I was told to take. I did not enjoy. They They were challenging, which is fine, but I just didn't enjoy what I was doing. Mathematics is fun. It's a useful tool. I don't want to study that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then when it came to, yeah, like our app side courses, some of them involved materials engineering. And whenever those courses came around, I was like, this is fun. This is interesting. I, I'm enjoying that. So it's kind of hard. You can't really shoehorn someone into liking materials engineering. We all have different brains and different ways of thinking, but I would say be open to the idea that the thing you wanted to do and came to university to do isn't necessarily the thing you will be doing because I mean, that's, that's happened to me. And I've spoken with a lot of different grad students and other students throughout my long time here. And they all, a lot of them ended up, you know, maybe they failed out of a course or they didn't pass something. They got held back a year, whatever it happened, but they always said that was the best thing that could ever happen to them because they are now doing the thing they like to do. And so for the longest time, materials engineering was kind of the dump department where it's like, well, you didn't get into this and this and this and this and this, so you're going here. And I think we're starting to change that stigma a little bit. Um, but I would say, yeah, just be open, be open to the learning that you're having and how you are enjoying it. Because if you don't like something and someone's telling you to do it, that's two reasons probably not to do that thing. Uh, but if you're like, look, I really enjoy this random niche idea and this department has that, you might get the chance to pursue that idea and really get to learn the things you are interested in. I mean, that's schooling, right? Like a lot of people say it's to get a job and that's true. It is to get a job. But why get a job when you can have a passion and one day hopefully get paid to do that passion? So. That's great advice uh, for all our, our young students, uh, young undergrads here at UBC. Um, not just for which field to go into, but I mean, when you're an undergrad, you are still very young um, and still figuring out who you are and what you want and what really drives you. Um, when you start university, I know there's always that pressure that you have to decide the future of your entire life uh, when you're 18 and you can't vary from that path uh but that's not true <laughs> yeah no not at all yeah that's what going to university is about it's to figure out those things yeah i mean a lot of people look at people like steve jobs and like all these big names and companies and stuff and if you look at their history like steve jobs was a college dropout you know <laughs> and then after he dropped out he went and took calligraphy courses and that's why Apple decided to have, well, that's why Apple does have the huge tech set that it has is because he took that course after dropping out, right? So, you know, don't let, don't let your failures define you. Let them be the motivator to get you going. I find North America has a huge stigma around failure and that it's the wrong thing to do. 
And in engineering, you quickly learn fail early, fail often, because that's how you learn and that's how you get to where you want to go. Cheers to failing. Yeah, cheers to failing. <laughs> yeah, cheers to failing. With all that failure, uh, you're going to need a lot of extra uh, motivation. So I'm curious, who's been a big motivator or an inspirational person to you? Yeah, um, I'd say, honestly, my parents. I'm very, very, very fortunate and blessed to have the parents that I have. I mean, my dad works his butt off for our family, and he does it with a smile on his face. And my mom's right there supporting him. He's like, okay, how can I work with you? How can I help this? You know, she's always... You know, looking at my, I have an older sister and the two of us are just endlessly supportive. Doesn't mean they'll just let us run wild and free and say, yo, you're doing the thing. Good for you. But they're, they're very critical, but in a very uplifting and kind of positive forward direction. Um, so my dad, I mean, so a fun thing in my life right now, my sister's about to get married and weddings are not cheap. <laughs> no matter how small you try to make the wedding, the price is still has a comma in it and a couple of zeros. And you're like, how, how, what, didn't we reduce the price? No. Yes, that is the reduced price. And you're like, okay, that's fantastic. So my dad's been working his butt off, uh, doing extra jobs, uh, in his field in his, uh, he has a small company to do that. And yeah, just over this weekend, he, they traveled by car for like three hours, both ways and knocked out a six-hour job and a three-hour job and a two-hour job. They spent the last two weekends doing that just to kind of collect money so that they can pay for this. And for me, that's an inspiration because my parents could not do that. They could try to find another venue, you know, to, to pay for this. But instead, they chose to put their head down, put in the work, and kind of show my sister and I what it's like to work for what you want. Sometimes you're going to have to do things you don't want to do to do the things you want to do. And that's a, it's a, it's a lesson I'm learning very hard right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm not wanting to do that, but I know that I should. And uh, being able to see it come to fruition and actually be successful uh, is, is a good inspiration. That's a good counterpoint to what you were saying just before this about <laughs> do what you want, um, but within reason, of course. <laughs> it's, I mean, we're all told as children, you know, dream up the world and it's true. I mean, you can dream and do pretty much anything these days. Um, there's the tools available uh, way more than it used to be. But, you know, it's always the uh, shoot for the moon and, or, yeah, aim for the moon and land in the stars. Or, you, you know that, whatever, whatever that quote is. Um, and I kind of like that idea because, you know, you work very hard at this one centered focus goal, kind of going back to what I was saying about, like, failure is, you know, you, you put everything to get to this one spot. But sometimes you just need to step back and look that you're already in an amazing place and appreciate where you're at no matter what's going on the fact that you're alive and breathing still means you still have a, a chance to fight and do what it is you want to do mm -hmm. and even if you find yourself in a, a place where you are getting discouraged it's always good to think would i be happier if i weren't in this situation um or or yeah or am i grateful for where i'm at right now yeah and it's, I mean, it's a sad way to think about it, but someone's always in a worse situation than you are. Um, but at the same time, someone's always in a better situation than you are. So, you know, you're always sitting in the middle of two ideas and you can look at it negatively or you can look at it positively. And sometimes just switching your perspective on your situation can be the big motivator and change to help you get out of that situation or succeed in that situation. I'm sure doing a master's is, um, there are times when you think, I wish I wasn't doing this right now. <laughs> and 
I don't want to get out of bed today. But on the other hand, you can also think, well, would I be happier if I weren't doing this master's and if I, d- I didn't have this opportunity to learn uh, all these new, uh, all this new knowledge? Yes. Yes. Great. Now, you're at the beginning of your career. Um, I'm curious, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you eventually retire? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm, I'm always, like every person, is tempted to say, have my name in lights and, uh, you know, publish this thing and do this thing. But, I mean, if I think back to when I was wanting to come to university, or I'd say deep into high school when I was, you know, exuberant and young and naive and, and wanting to change the world, I think the most important thing is, like, have a positive effect on the lives of people that are around you. Um, sometimes that just means you helped one person. And I think we, we need to get into the mindset that helping one person is, is great and fantastic. And if you're able to help one person do what it is they need to do or get out of a situation or do anything, that's, that's it. That's, that's kind of what life is. Some people are fortunate to help millions of people, but sometimes, you know, there's, there's a song that I've been, it's called Dream Small. I forget the name of the artist, but it's like big dreams are great. You know, helping the world is great, but sometimes, you know, your backyard needs more help. And, you know, sometimes that backyard is your neighbor's backyard and, you know, they're going through a tough time. And so I hope that my work or whatever work that I'm doing makes someone's life better. Um, You know, my name doesn't need to be written on it. Be nice. I'm I'm not going to say no to it if it comes up. But just the fact that it would have this legacy of continually helping people help people and make life better and, yeah, be able to kind of throw this positive spin into a lot of negativity that's kind of especially now floating around in the world um yeah (laughs) well and that's also um a fundamental concept that you have to understand to be successful at science uh major world-changing discoveries are almost never made by one person it's a communal effort uh and it is a community of science um, even though we may celebrate one or two people as the rock stars, um, th- there's a whole invisible team behind them um, that doesn't get the credit very often. I say, yeah, if you look at any research paper, you know, you're like, when you when you write a citation in your uh, your research paper, it's, you know, one last name in a year. But if you look at the paper, there's like seven names. And then if you go down to the acknowledgement section, there's, you know, a couple paragraphs saying, thank you so much for all the work and believing in me and keeping me going and yeah it's like the the people that do the work are very important because without it there wouldn't be the work but the people outside of the work are just as important because you know they say in the u.s you know every president there's a woman beside him that's allowing him to be the president that he was you know maybe one day it'll be a man standing beside (laughs) uh to say that the woman can be everything that she was but there's always someone right behind them helping them, supporting them, nurturing them, and getting them to be the best that they can be. And yeah, you can't do that in a vacuum. And I mean, even any uh, transformative paper still relies on a, a literature review, um, which is just building on the the field of science that's come before. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You can't, uh, you can't build a wall without building on top of something. Mm-hmm. You can't, um, or a building. A wall is a little, a little in- exclusive there. Uh, you can't build a house. There, so you can't build a house without uh, a foundation, and that foundation is every living human being that's come before mm-hmm. us. No one's inventing a whole new scientific field out of thin air. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> It'd be great, though. <laughs> Absolutely. 
well, maybe one day. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> um, again, I'm going get, to get you to look to the future. Um, the world is changing at, at lightning speed these days. Uh, not only physically, not only uh, in terms of climate change, but also uh, how we understand and perceive the world. Uh, the field that a, a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time that they retire. I'm sure materials uh, science will be um, completely different by the time you retire. So where do you see your field going? And what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? Yeah, materials science is in a really unique spot to a lot of things that have existed because we've been around, you know, already over 100 years. Like UBC uh, celebrated its 100 year with our department and everything. And it's it's a very interesting spot because we're very young. As much as we've been around for a long time, we haven't really, I'd say, hit the mainstream. You know, we're, we're still that indie cult band that's uh, chilling in the side and doing the local shows uh, because it's, people didn't realize how dependent we are on that information. And you can do a lot of things pretending it doesn't exist, but to do those things to the point where we're expecting things to happen nowadays, you need that information. I mean, I think Elon Musk just sent out a tweet a couple days ago saying, take a material science course. You know, that's, that's someone who is arguably changing the world at lightning speed, you know, using, using electricity and, you know, manufacturing cars at an insane rate and really deep into battery technology and trying to be a cutting edge there. He's also, you know, the whole space program and SpaceX and satellite. He's doing a lot of things, yet he's interested in material science. And having a, you haven't really had someone leading a company in such a way that points to materials engineering or material science as the thing that's changing their industry. And so we're kind of sitting in that shift where our specific areas of research are now becoming very relevant whereas other departments maybe they're waning or now they've kind of hit a steady state we're kind of just about to explode um, as people kind of see that everything we want to pursue requires this knowledge so I'd say in the next 50 years we're definitely going to be on the upward trajectory now what that looks like after that time could be different and I'd say materials science didn't really exist for the longest time. So like the department at UBC, it used to be the metallurgy department. So it was kind of, you know, guys in a workshop <laughs> kind of vibe. Um, and there's a lot of science going on, but it was, it was metallurgy. And then we had the chemistry department. And when the silicon chip came out, it kind of merged those two fields. It was like, oh, chemistry and metallurgy are the same thing. Uh, and so they kind of made a little child and that became material science. So yeah, we're still, we're still, we're like in our toddler phase. Um, but I think as we move forward deeper into the future, it will start to kind of branch out into maybe more specific fields that kind of re like re right now, material science, like I said, like it covers a huge gamut, right? You can, you can research literally anything under this one umbrella. And I think as we see out of like civil engineering, you start getting, oh, you got land surveying, you've got construction, you know, there's, there's defined areas under this big umbrella. And I think we're just starting to realize those definitions. Like biomaterials is a huge part of material science, but it's really small right now. And I think as that goes further and all our other departments, we'll start to see those kind of pop out and become their own thing. 
Uh, but it'll be it'll be quite some time. But I'm excited to see that because there's a lot of cool stuff happening in just like this is like material. I don't know I'm so happy about material science because there's just so many cool things that it's one of those like if you watch like History Channel late at night and they have like random docu series on something and you're like, oh, that's that's so cool. It's like you can study those things. Like th- that's that's a thing now. You can go to school to research those things. So I think we're kind of. I don't want to say future proof because nothing's really future proof, <laughs> but at this point in time, we're future proof for, for a good while. Um, and as we morph into kind of understanding exactly what we are, uh, we'll be able to kind of have a better conversation about where we're going. <laughs> but yeah. The figure that I often hear um, is that in order to transition to a green economy, and away from a fossil fuel-based economy, we're going to need between three and five times the number of minerals that have been mined in humanity's history. And in some cases, we might not have the deposits needed to do that. So we're going to find we're going to need to find new ways to make the things that we uh, use, um, and new ways to synth- synthesize materials that we're going to need. Uh, to keep growing our economy and uh, growing the prosperity of humanity um, while also uh, cleaning up the mess that we've made. When I say that's, I find that's the, the, the cleaning up the mess that we made will solve a lot of our issues right now because a lot of the, everything we dug up is our waste. <laughs> and right now the highest, so if you're looking at like gold, the highest uh, gold per ton that we have is in our, uh, scrap metal in our e-waste sorry e-waste holds the largest content of gold that we have and it, if you're lucky you find one gram for every ton that you dig so and it's on the order of like i think it's like 50 to 100 grams a ton or something like it's orders of magnitude more in our waste than it is in our new mining and so yeah i think the future forward is looking at what we've already done and cleaning up our messes backwards <laughs> And then once we have cleaned up our messes, we can kind of see, I mean, simultaneously doing it, but I think a lot of cleaning up our messes will allow us to actually move forward um, just for land use and stuff like that, because a lot of our dumps are just holes in the ground. <laughs> so, yeah. Excellent. Well, uh, Connor, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, I mean... It, it covered the gamut as well. It's yeah. I being being a student. So a lot of I've had a lot of people, a lot, a handful of people. I don't know about <laughs> of the people that I know. Uh, a good amount of them have asked about considering grad studies, and I kind of I kind of have the same view of grad studies as I have of uh, university, and that it's not for everyone. You know, trade schools are a real thing. They're very useful, and if we are going to move forward as a society, we need more people in trades. Uh, but if you've made it to university and you're enjoying it, if you enjoy research, if you enjoy looking at things very meticulously and kind of having a subtle OCD about everything, <laughs> um, it's kind of a direction that you can go. And, you know, like my department, we're already a small department, and then, you know, even less of us are doing grad studies. But it's very rewarding to learn in this environment, even if you don't want to end up doing whatever it is you may be researching. I'd say if you think you want to do grad study, if it's even just a thought or a question in your own mind, I would say actively try to pursue it because in that pursuing, you'll figure out if you want to do it because you'll end up coming across people that are doing it. 
you'll be able to speak with them more. And then if you do end up kind of falling into a role and, and being a grad student, you'll learn more about yourself than you will about things. No matter how amazing your research is, it's, it's really a school I find is a, a nice arc about discovering yourself. And it's a really safe place to do that because if you fall on your face, it's a little easier to pick yourself up in most cases uh, because you know, you're not necessarily as financially uh, dependent on yourself. <laughs> um, and so being able to stay in the nice little bubble of school uh, can be good for you if you, know, you're not, if you don't feel you're quite ready for the real world quote-unquote real world, um, you can kind of simulate the real world in grad studies and use that as a platform to grow as yourself. And at least with engineering and the studying and schooling I've done, you learn more about what you don't want to do than what you do want to do. And you can kind of just check off new, oh, hard no. (laughs) And uh, maybe that going deeper into grad studies will give you more clarity on what you don't like doing so that when you do enter the job market, you can go, okay, I know what I like, I know what I don't like, and I really know what I don't like, so I can move towards things that I'm either currently unsure about or mildly interested in. And it'll kind of clear a little bit of the, uh, <laughs> the the haze, I would say. But yeah. As we were saying before, um, when you turn 18, you're supposed to know exactly where your life's going to go um, until you retire. Uh, which, of course, is nonsense. No, no 18-year-old should know exactly where they want to be. Um, and if you meet anyone that says they do, they're lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. There are the odd, per- there is one or two. They do exist, but I'd say they're the unicorns of the world. <laughs> when I look back at myself when I was 18, uh, most of the stress that I felt was having, or was feeling like I had to uh, know all these answers uh, for the rest of my life. Um, but like you said, sometimes just crossing off options makes that whole process so much less uh, stressful because whittling down the options uh, rather than saying, I want to do this or this or this, uh, um, and instead saying, I don't want to do uh, X, Y, and Z, um, can just make that whole process so much more manageable. Yeah, and I, if we if we look at, the, at uh, the fine arts, I would say, so like painting and drawing and music and theater, some of what we consider as a society the best art came from artists restricting themselves and putting bounds on what it is mm-hmm. they're going to do. You know, you have a, a blank canvas. For, ask any art student. The worst thing in the world is a blank canvas. But if you put a line on there, you have something to work with. And so just kind of giving yourself the best shot at that uh, will kind of allow you to be your greatest self because we can literally be anything but anything isn't necessarily what we need to be. Mm-hmm. We need to be us. And so being able to define who we are will help us to help, I guess. Yeah. Marie Kondo, your personal options. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Connor, thanks for sitting down and chatting with me today. Thanks for um, explaining what's going on with uh, material science. Um the exciting future of that field uh, and just your general uh, advice for young people. Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. It's a good time.
thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.